We're closing out our series, Summer in the Psalms, and isn't it crazy that we're closing out our summer series? Anybody just bummed that summer is almost over? Like, I know teachers are getting ready to go back to school. Um, you know, kids are getting ready to go back to school. Some parents are excited about that. Yeah, yeah. Summer's almost over. Um, and we're closing out uh, with Psalm 2, but before we do that, I just want to share a little bit of truthfulness and transparency with you guys. Um, you guys know me. Uh, I'm not afraid to stand up here and tell you uh, failures and fears, and I want to talk to you about a fear of mine. I have a fear of flying. Anybody else scared of flying? Just a couple of us. Anybody here love flying? Weird, weird. I'm on the, I'm in the minority here. Um, yeah, I just, there's something about flying. It, whenever I go on a plane, yeah, I, I, I'm fine. I'm not like a panic. I'm just like a little uneased. I wouldn't say I'm scared. I'm just like, anything could happen. Um, and whenever we go on a plane, especially flying in and out of Reno, there's a lot of turbulence, right? Flying into Reno is rough. And whenever we hit turbulence, there's always something that happens. I start to look around to see everyone else's panic level, right? Because what's going on in me feels like the end of the world. You know, like I'm, I'm keeping it cool, but I'm sweating a lot. And I start to look around at everyone else's panic level. And you can find those frequent flyers, and they're, they're just, their headphones are on. Like, okay, good. But there's sometimes... And I've had some flights where I've hit turbulence that has rocked everybody in the plane to a place of nervousness. Anybody ever experienced this? I'm talking the plane's doing womp, womp. It's, it's all over the place. And I'm looking and everyone is scared, including me. And I'm panicked, but there's always one person on a plane, and this is some advice for you, that you can look to to tell if you're really in danger or not. The flight attendants. Now, I'm just gonna give you some advice for when you're flying. If the flight attendant is just casually joking and like, you know, just having a good time, you're fine. But if you ever see the flight attendant start to panic, now it's your turn to panic. When I, and so when I was saying, we have, we, and for those moments in the flight, I put my trust into those flight attendants. Okay, if they're fine, I'm fine. And even no matter how scared I feel inside, I can trust them. Psalm 2 is similar to this kind of visual. Psalm 2 is going to speak, and you're going to see this, it's going to speak to a crazy, chaotic world. It's going to speak to decisions made by rulers that are against God. It's going to speak to people rebelling against God. And it's easy in this world that we live in today to look around and say, I am panicked. I'm nervous. What do I look to? This psalm is what we look to for confidence in the midst of a crazy season, in a crazy world. Psalm two starts off with this. Verse one, why are the nations so angry? Why do they waste their time with futile plans? Why are the nations so angry? You gotta make sure when you read this passage, you read it with a little bit of confusion because that's how it's written. Why are they angry? Or other translations, why are the nations raging? Why are they wasting their time with these futile plans that don't matter? Does that sound like anybody ever confused about what's happening in our world today? Why are they wasting, what are they doing? Don't they know like, that God is God? Don't they know that what truth is? Can't they see it? Like, how, why are they wasting time? 
planning and scheming and all of these things. Well, it, this is written from that place of just confusion. Like as, and sometimes as Christians, we can feel this. Why, why don't they see it? Why doesn't my friend see it? Why doesn't my co-worker see the truth? Why does my nation not see the truth? Why, why, does this, why do these things keep happening? Why are they wasting their time? And we can get caught up in this why game. I wanna address things that will stop someone, some organization, some place from seeing this truth, from being able to see the truth of Christ Jesus, being able to see the truth of God in the world we live in. And, and leads them to planning and scheming to try to make their own way in the world. The first thing is this. Sometimes it's blindness to the truth. Blindness to the truth. Choosing not to see. I mean, as a Christian, we know we look around, when we walk outside, we look at the beautiful uh, mountains, and we go to Lake Tahoe, we're like, of course there's a God, right? Of course there's a creator, we see Jesus move daily. We see miracles happen. We see people's lives change. Of course Jesus is real. But sometimes people around us in this world, there's a blindness to the truth. It can be right in their face and they won't see it. Anybody ever experienced this? You're praying for someone. You're praying for someone and you're praying that they would encounter Jesus, they would see Jesus and Jesus works a miracle right in front of them. And you're like, hey, that was Jesus, that was God. Like, or it was coincidence. Yeah, blindness to the truth can cause us to do this. Blindness, uh, one thing I love uh, with my kids, is so fun, my, my kids are the worst at finding things. Anybody else kids do this? Like, I'll, go grab your shoes. They're not there, Dad. Okay, you're telling me they're not by the front door. No, they're not. Okay, go look again. They go look. Yeah, Dad, they're not here. I'm literally standing there, I can see the shoes right by their feet. And I'll say to them, okay, if I have to come find your shoes, you're going to regret it. Oh, they're right here. Oh, they were right in front of me the whole time. You know, sometimes they could choose not to see. Sometimes we, as humanity, can choose not to see the truth of Jesus, even when it's right in front of us. So we have blindness to the truth. Sometimes it's hardened hearts. Sometimes we can have hardened hearts. We know the truth, still don't care. Maybe this comes from church hurt. Maybe this comes from hurt in the world, hurt in our families and our relationships. So like we believe, like sometimes there's people who are like, you know what, I know Jesus is Jesus. I, I believe in God. I just don't want to follow his truth. I, 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 I see this. I see there's a creator. I see there's a God. But I have hardened my heart to the point of not caring. I've hardened my heart to not caring about the truth. And the third one, that leads us to a place of this, where, we, where the truth is right there and we choose not to follow it, to see it, we have hardened hearts towards it, or this one, narcissism. Don't nudge anybody, don't say, hey, listen up. The truth is, we can all struggle with this. Because what I'm saying here in narcissism is when we get to the point of saying, I am God. I am the ruler of my life. I am the God, I am the one who makes the decisions. I'm the one who's gonna be like the decision maker, the rule maker in my life. I'm gonna get us out of this. I'm gonna make plans. And this goes not just from the personal level, it goes to the corporate level, the nation level, where we start to believe that we are the controllers of our destiny. And it causes us 
to get into these futile plans it's talking about in verse one. Instead of submitting and giving our life to the creator God, surrendering to him. But we have become narcissists in our thinking that we are in control, that we are the gods. And we see this throughout our world. We see it in individuals. We see it on the daily throughout our world. And then in verse two, it says this. The kings of the earth prepare for battle. The rulers plot together against the Lord and against his anointed one. The kings of the earth prepare for battle. Once again, they scheme. They prepare for this battle and they plot together. Is there any time you can think of the word plotting as a good thing? No, it's not like plotting always has a negative tone to it. It's when we get together. I, whenever I read this passage, I think of like the leaders of the world, like, ah, yeah. You know, like they're, they're coming together. They're plotting. And I know that we know, we, we see this today, but this isn't new. This plotting of humanity. Coming together. We, since the beginning of creation, humanity has always thought that if we come together, there's strength in numbers, we can do it. We can, you know, we, we see in scripture where nations will become like their own gods and they'll worship themselves or their rulers. We can do it, strength in numbers. Even the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. It says, then they said, come, let's build a great city for ourselves with a tower that reaches into the sky. That will make us famous and keep us from being scattered all over the world. From the very beginning in the book of Genesis, we've seen humanity start to plot and to scheme, to plan against God's will. Let's build a tower so we can be famous, so we can be recognized. It says that they, they will plot against the Lord and his anointed one. In verse two, it says, against the Lord and his anointed one. Of course, as Christ followers, we know that when, when the, he's speaking of this anointed one, he's speaking of Jesus. This is important. Why is this passage important? Because a lot of times when it comes to the world viewing religion, viewing God, they can separate the two. That there's God and then there's Jesus. Have you ever heard this argument? Okay, I believe there's God. But Jesus was just a man. Okay, yeah, I believe there's a creator, but I don't believe Jesus was the son of God. The reason why this passage is so important is it's saying that you can't have one without the other. You can't pick and choose who is anointed and who's not. There's Lord and his anointed one. What it's really saying, I'm just gonna get to the, the, the bottom line here. Is it saying, if you're against one, you're against both? If you're for one, you're for both. They are unified. They are not separate. Verse three goes on to read, let us break their chains, they cry, and free ourselves from slavery to God. Let us break our chains and free ourselves from slavery to God. So we see in verses one and two, we see these rulers and this plotting and this planning, and then we see their hearts cry here. Let us break away from slavery to God. Let us be free. See, there's really only two ways to look at your relation, a relationship with Christ. And we see this every day. Christ is either in your life the chain breaker or the one who puts chains on you. 
depending on how you see him. Let me explain this a little more. What they're crying out for. Let us break free of the chains of God. Let us break free and experience freedom. Let me do what I want. Let me be me. Let, let me, let my feelings rule. Let my feelings be the driver of my life. All these rules and scripture, all these things he's telling us not to do. Let's not do that. Let's be free and independent. Do we see this in our world today? We see this all the time. That we, it depends on how we see Christ. Do we see him as the one who's placing rules and regulations on our life that are chaining us down that we say, let us break these chains? Or do we see Christ as the one who has set us free from the chains of sin and then given us boundaries on how to live and how to follow him? It depends on how we see it. You know, it's, it's, it's either, you're either chained or you're unchained. And I know some of us walk around in our daily Christian life feeling like we are chained to the good news of Jesus. Gosh, man, I just want to act this way. I just want to while out and do what I want to do. But this, the word of God has chained me. That's a lie from the enemy. All these things that our flesh cries out for end in decay and in pain, and in death. What Christ has given us is not rules to make our life worse. He's given us guidelines so we can have the blessed life with him. That we can learn as our time here on earth to practice our eternity. We can learn that these things that others will look at us, and you know this is true, look at us and call us names for being you know, conservative or, or having too many rules in our life, and we aren't even free thinking, and people look at us and call us silly, we will say, no, I'm practicing for my eternity. I'm practicing for my eternity. We see this every day in our desires. Desires with this, they're either chains, we're either chained by our desires or we're free. We see it in our morality, we see it in our fun. And we have to make the decision. Is Christ the ruler of our life? Is he the one who sets us free? And do we see him that way? Or do we see him as just the restrictions that are stopping us from having fun? And if it, we are the second one, we have to ask ourselves, do I have a real understanding of who Christ is? Do I have a real understanding of what true freedom is. Amen? Verse four says this, but the one who rules in heaven laughs. Laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. I love this verse. I love it. Because we, we're seeing this rebellion, this, this re, the desire for the people on earth to not be with God, to plot and to scheme against him, to prepare for battle against him. And he laughs. He laughs. He scoffs at them. This verse right here should bring you so much peace. Like peace? Why would I have peace at God laughing? Because all of these things that the world is doing, all the rulers who are, who are scheming and plotting against God, God is not scared. God is not nervous. God is not, he, he is so loose in this. He so, he's so knows what's gonna happen. He's over so much that he just laughs. Have you ever watched a kid try to solve, like a five-year-old kid try to solve an algebra problem? It's very funny. 
hey, solve this problem. Put it in front of them, and they're gonna start writing stuff. It's for. No, it's not for. It's not the answer. When you watch a kid try to solve something that's above their understanding, it's funny to watch because they make stuff up. This is what it's saying here. It's like, is humanity, we're trying to figure out everything. We're trying, to, we're trying to plot, and we're trying to get everything figured out, and we're like, here, God, see, I did it. And he says, nope, <laughs> long off. This verse should bring us peace that our God is not sitting in heaven terrified and wondering what's gonna happen next. I, it blows me away, because I think sometimes this is our view of our God. I watch people, I read social media posts, I read all this stuff, and there's this, this panic level with decisions of the world today, actions of the world, uh, people and the things they're saying. And there's this panic level of like, uh-oh, what's gonna happen? What's gonna happen? And we think that God's up in heaven saying the same thing, like, oh my gosh, I wonder what's gonna happen down there. <sighs> Man, I, I don't know if they're gonna get this right. He's not. He's not, he's not that way. And when it comes to political decisions, personal decisions, even complete rebellions against God, he is not scared. He is not terrified. This laughter should give us peace. Because then it goes on to the next verse. After he laughs, verse five and six, then in his anger, he rebukes them, terrifying them with his fierce fury. For the Lord declares, I have placed my chosen king on the throne in Jerusalem, on my holy mountain. The Lord declares, I wanna just focus on this line. The Lord declares, I have placed my chosen king. And those who oppose him. This passage is speaking, at first there's laughter, and then when it comes to the opposing, that Jesus is the one on the throne. Do you know that throughout history, there has been political rebellions against God and his people? There's been many people who have tried to stop the movement of Jesus Christ, to stop his people. There's been rebellion after rebellion. Actually, I wrote some of this down as I studied this idea of rebellion against God. Right at, at, you know, soon after Jesus' death and resurrection, Emperor Nero takes over. He burns the city and he persecutes Christians. He burns the city and some believe that it's, it's all a question if it was him or if it was not, but most people believe he set the city on fire to, just to have an enjoyment. And then once he started getting pushback, he decided to blame the Christians for this happening. He said it was the Christians that did it. This began a blanket persecution of Christians across the land. Vespasian, the next emperor, came. And not only was there persecutions of Christians under him, but the de demolition of the temple of Jerusalem. Domitian, the next one, he was a tyrant. John the apostle knows this. The evangelist, he would agree with this because he was immersed in a tub of boiling oil under his leadership for his faith. 
um, Heridian ordered a brutal bulldozing of the, the Palestinian Jews. Decetius, the next ruler, decided that all Christians had to pay homage to the Roman gods or be killed. Um, Valerian, uh, his reign was known as the reign of terror for any Christian or believer. That was his, it was known as the reign of terror. It was so horrific and Christians were hunted down. Diocesian, Diocesian brought about what we know as now today as the great persecution. Governors were given direct edicts from the emperor Christian churches and texts were to be destroyed. This is just a couple hundred years after Christ. He claimed, this emperor, um, diocesian, claimed that he had defeated Christianity under his rule. He actually had a medal with this inscription on it. The name of Christianity has been extinguished. The name of Christianity, this is just the first couple hundred years after the Christian movement in Jesus, after his resurrection, after it starts, the first couple hundred years, they've been persecuted ever since. But here's the truth. Every one of those leaders is dead and in the ground, and Christ Jesus is alive on the throne. People have risen up against Jesus for generations and against his people for generations with one goal, to stop the movement of Christianity in our world. And they have all failed. Jesus is alive, and the church is as strong as ever. And guess what? It's not stopping. Do you know that in our world today, the Christians are still persecuted? In fact, most people believe that Christians are the most persecuted religious group in our world today. Over 200 million Christians are denied fundamental human rights solely because of their faith. 200 million Christians today because of their faith. What this says is we know the history, we know the rulers who are dead and buried, but there are still people, groups, parties, organizations that are, their goal is to stop Christianity. They will try, but they will fail. I'm gonna, they will try, but they will fail because Jesus is on the throne. And as they plot and they plot against him, they will never conquer him. And that we will still face persecution. We will still face hardships, but it will not be enough to stop Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Verse seven and verse eight says this. The king proclaims this decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I've become your father. Only ask and I will give you the nations as your inheritance, the whole earth as your possession. This decree from the Lord here, saying that you are my son, is giving authority to Jesus. He's on the throne. God the Father is giving authority to Jesus. If you notice, it says, you know, when, often when others are referred to in Scripture, like we are referred to as sons and daughters, uh, when we're elected into the, uh, the faith with Christ, um, we hear others as the word sons in Scripture, but there is only one son of God. This is an authority given to Jesus, setting him apart from the norm, saying he is the one who's in charge. John 5.22 says this, in addition, the father judges no one. Instead, he has given his son absolute authority to judge so that everyone will honor the son just as they honor the father. Anyone who does not honor the son is certainly not honoring the father who sent him. So we see in the first part of this psalm, this rebellion, this plotting, 
Then we see the laughter. Then we see the, the throning of Jesus, that he is on the throne over all things, and now what is gonna happen after he is given this? It says, you will break them with an iron rod and smash them like clay pots. This is the truth. Humanity, this world, all the decisions, all the plot, everything, we are the clay. He is the iron rod. He is over everything. He's more powerful. And if there's a rebellion against him, this is what will happen. It break them like clay pots. But then there's a warning that happens in verse 10. So this is what's gonna happen. The iron rod's gonna come. And the clay pots will be broken. But verse 10 says this. Now listen, you kings, act wisely. Be warned, you rulers of earth. Act wisely, be warned. I've warned you. Anybody ever use this with your kids? I've told you about this. Don't do that. Still your kids are like going towards the fireplace. I know, I know. Humanity's the same way. God's saying act wisely. Be warned because time is short. Act wisely, get your life together. Surrender to me before it's too late. Stop plotting. Stop scheming against me. Surrender to me. Surrender to me. I, I, I want this for you. I'm crying out for this for you. But it's up to you to surrender. Which verse 11 says, Serve the Lord with reverent fear and rejoice with trembling. Submit to God's royal son or he will become angry. And a lot of times people read this scripture like, Jesus angry. Come on, that's not the God I know. I want you to remember there's a long list of warnings here. A long list of descriptions of God's sovereignty and God's authority. Jesus and his, his rightful place on the throne. There's a long list of that before this anger comes. Submit to God's royal son or he will become angry and you will be destroyed in the midst of your activities. For anger flares up for his anger flares up in an instant. But what joy for those who take refuge in him. What joy for those who take refuge in him. Submit to God's royal son. Submit to Jesus. Surrender to him. Man, as I read scripture more and more, it is easy to read the passages where the wrath of God is talked about and get angry to get frustrated that this is what's gonna happen in his return, that this is what's gonna happen. But the more I read scripture, I see over and over that he is calling out to us. He's calling out to the world, submit, submit to me. This isn't my heart's desire for you, but you can't be in rebellion against me and be with me. Submit to me. And so often as Christians, we look at this world we're living in. We look at this world we're living in and we see a world that might even be in rebellion against God and decisions are made and we are filled with anger against them. I think we need to change this a little bit. That we should begin to pray for them. Pray for those. A simple prayer. God, Help me submit to you and not be in rebellion. 
and help them submit to you. Help them see the truth. Help them see your truth and what's coming, God, and who you are. But here's honestly, honestly, hear my heart on this. I hear the church and so many of us complaining so much. I wanna ask a simple question. Are we praying this prayer as much as we're complaining? Are we praying for them to see the truth of God as much as we're complaining? Because if not, we have to check our heart. Our prayer should be that that friend that is against our beliefs, who's angry at our faith, who mocks us, that he would submit to God. That the ones who are in charge of my company that I work for, who are clearly not in charge, uh, not aligned with God, that they would submit to God. For the ones I see on the street who are struggling, who, who are rebelling against God with their actions and their words, I would not be filled with anger, but I would begin to pray that they would submit to the rule of God over their life. For the rulers and authorities that are making decisions that I think are not with God, that I would pray for them earnestly, that they would bow and surrender to the God and creator of the universe. This is how I'm called to live as a Christian. The plane is shaking. We aren't looking for a flight attendant. We're looking to the word of God to tell us what's gonna happen. And then it closes with this verse and I'll close with this. But what joy for all of those who take refuge in him. We hear this psalm, it speaks of this rebellion and this plotting against God, but what's gonna happen when he comes back? This idea of the iron rod smashing the clay pots. But what joy for those who take refuge in him. As we close out this series, I wanna ask you a simple question. Is your refuge found in him? Is, there, is your life submitted to this King Jesus? Or is your life in rebellion against him? Is there areas in your life that are in rebellion? Is there areas in your life that you need to turn over and submit to him? Because here's the most beautiful thing. When you read this Psalm, we hear about this return of Christ and what he's gonna do and the, all of this stuff. We have to remember that over 2,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, God left heaven. Jesus came to earth, died a criminal's death, shedding his blood for you and for me so we would have the opportunity to surrender to him and to find our refuge in him. Wherever you're at right now, wherever you're at in life, you are not too far gone. You've not made too many mistakes. You are not what everybody says you are. You're not so far off that it's too late for you to make this decision to surrender to God, to surrender to Christ Jesus and make him the ruler over your life. And in fact, we're gonna do this now. We're gonna pray. And we're gonna pray, and as I pray, if you're in here and you're saying, Shane, you know what? Hearing of this Jesus and this return of his and this rebellion against him, I see it, and I see it in me.
I don't just see it in the world, I see it in me, and today I need to give my life to him. I need to surrender to him. As I pray, I just want you to do something very simple. Talk to him. Ask him to forgive you for the sins that have caused rebellion in you against him. Ask for him to move in you, and I want you to just say, I submit my life to you. Be the ruler over my life. So I'm gonna pray. We're all gonna bow our head and close our eyes. And if that's you and you're like, I need to give my life to Jesus. I need to surrender to this king on the throne, Christ Jesus. As I pray, I just want you to talk to him. Ask for forgiveness, repent for your sins and ask him to be the ruler over your life. Let's pray together. Father God, we love you. We love the truth of your word. We love the truth of your plan. But right now we come before you and we pray that you would be the ruler over our life. That we would submit to you, God. That we would submit to your righteous rule and not rebel against you. That our lives would be submitted only to you. That there would be no rebellion in us against you. We pray this for ourselves. We pray this for our community and our country and our world, God that we would submit to the truth of you. Right now, I pray for the one in this room who's battling with so much, and this is the moment where they're turning their life over to you. Give them strength, God. We love you and we praise you. And it's your name we pray. Amen.